A very good morning. You're listening to News Talks on the Record with me, Susan Kyo, filling in this morning for Kieran Cudahy. I would love to hear from you this morning. You can text us on 53106. At a cost of 30 cents, you'll also get me on Twitter at Susan Kyo News. Now, loads coming up on the show. But first, we'll start with a look at the Sunday papers with our panel in studio. I'm joined this morning by Shona Murray, Europe correspondent for Euronews, Aoife Barry, assistant news editor at the journal.ie, and Richie Oakley, editor of the Times Ireland edition. Good morning to you all, and thanks for coming into us this morning. Now first for those who are lucky enough not to be up and about yet this morning we'll take a look at some of the front page stories. Uh, No surprises for guessing what's on the front of a lot of the papers this morning. Yesterday's historic win against the All Blacks at the Aviva Stadium. No doubt a few sore heads doing the rounds this morning. Uh, Loads of coverage of the win in both the sports pages uh, this morning and the front pages too. A great picture of Jacob Stockdale making the front of the Sunday Times under the headline Stockdale Muscle Ireland to victory it's a great picture. Another great one on the front of the Sunday Independent this morning. Uh, Fergal Keane writing, All blacks beaten by the mightiest men that ever wore green. And uh, we will, of course, ta- talk more about uh, those incredible scenes at the Aviva with Owen Sheen from Off the Ball. He'll be in to chat to me later on in the show. Now, some of the other stories around this morning. Uh, no, uh, the Sunday Independent's lead, uh, Leo Vradkar, in 3,000 tax cut grab for power. Kevin Doyle, the paper's political editor, is writing this morning that a tax cut worth 3,000 euro to the average worker will form the centrepiece of the Taoiseach's election plans. Uh, Finnegale making its first pitch ahead of a likely election next year and this coming as we know as confidence and supply talks between Finnegale and Fianna Fáil enter their fourth week so we will be talking to our panel about all of that shortly in the programme. Brexit also also making uh, the front of a lot of the papers this morning. The Sunday Business Post, the Thornish Simon Coveney saying he believes a second Brexit referendum is now a realistic possibility. This is in the wake of the political turmoil in Britain. Uh, It's an interview that Simon Coveney has given to Hugh O'Connell, the paper's political correspondent today, in which he said the idea that Britain could easily leave the European Union is a fantasy. We will have lots more on Brexit, some developments uh, this morning. Theresa May speaking to Sky News, also Dominic Rabb speaking to the BBC this morning. So we'll get to uh, more on that with our panel shortly as well. The Sunday Times then leading with a different story this morning, a health story. A cancer patient got false all clear on genetic tests. Uh, John Mooney has this story today about a woman who was diagnosed with cancer, cancer after being told by a hospital that she did not carry a gene which put her at risk of developing the disease. Uh, the Sunday World leading with the headline, Monk Pal Hit the Truth. Uh, this is about Clive Staunton. People will remember his name from uh, during the week. He was shot dead at his home in Leakslip in County Kildare on Thursday night. Nicola Talent writing this morning that he was killed in a row over counterfeit cigarettes and his murder was not directly ordered by senior members of the Kinahan cartel. And then also just to mention finally the Mail on Sunday leading with the Boys Club at top of the civil service. John Drennan has this story this morning and he writes only two out of 17 government departments are being run by a woman. Now to get to our panel as I said Shona Murray's here, Aoife Barry and Richie Oakley. Richie let me come to you on the rugby first. Uh, you're a big fan. How significant significant was this win yesterday? Uh, well, I think it was highly significant. I mean, for, well, first of all, I mean, there are people pointing out that it was a friendly. That, that, mm. That's uh, fair enough. Um, but, you know, it was number one in the world versus number two in the world. Ireland had already beaten the All Blacks uh, two years ago. And the question, I suppose, was, was that a fluke? Could they yeah. do it again? 
And I think this Irish team have shown that they're just at a, at a standard now that that's really, really high. They're extremely well drilled. And um, before, like you used to see players coming off the bench, you used to be kind of concerned. Oh no, what's going to happen now? That the level, the, the the you know the level of play is going to drop a bit. But in fact. Ireland now have a full squad. They can rotate players. When players are injured, they can bring in more. And they can bring in players in the middle of a game who actually add to it. And the, the tactics are really incredible. The, to watch them play, like the speed at which they got back up off the ground, the way they defended, uh, was just in, in, incredible. And um, results like that, like, you know, OK, they have to push on from here now and they have to perform at a higher level, you know, in the World Cup because they've had disappointing World Cups before. But the fact that they're they're doing this regularly there's a system in place now and they all seem to be buying into it and there's young players coming through as well so it's 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 brilliant for Irish rugby but you just you hope that they can sustain this and obviously Joe Smith's a big part of it now you look at that match like New Zealand could have scored a couple of tries mm. and if they had the result could have gone you know the other way they had chances you know they had a knock on um, and then there was Peter Manny just about rescuing the, the ball <laughs> yeah. at a couple of occasions but in total the way that they played was just phenomenal and I mean and such an incredible a atmosphere incredible atmosphere yeah yeah I wasn't at the match I was watching it from, from the couch I actually woke I'm up sure my, it was an incredible atmosphere I, you're sitting really I, I woke, I woke my, uh, my, my eight year old daughter and made her come downstairs to watch the last last five minutes I hope she'll always remember that yeah. <laughs> That's really cute, actually. OK, now we could talk about the match all day, but we're going to turn to Brexit. There's lots in the papers, lots of comments and interviews um, on UK TV shows this morning. As I mentioned there, Dominic Raab has just been on the BBC earlier. Jeremy Corbyn was on Sky News and also speaking uh, with the British Prime Minister. She also spoke to Sky News and we're going to have a listen now to some of her exchange with Sophie Ridge. We need to make sure that people of Northern Ireland still have the reassurance of no hard border between them and Ireland. So... We've got two options at that stage, and we can choose whether to have this backstop, as it, you know, the phrase has come into normal common parlance, or whether to extend the implementation period for a brief period of time. I understand that you don't want once the backstop to happen. Once you're but in the backstop, the, 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 if it ever happens... The issue is about being able to leave unilaterally. I mean, yeah. we can leave the EU unilaterally by triggering Article 50. It's about sovereignty. Well, I think, as you've just seen from two years of negotiations on the withdrawal agreement for us leaving the European Union, that, yes, there was an article there to leave the European Union, but it's about a negotiation between both sides as to how that is going to be done. That's what we've been entering into. So in the backstop, there will be a review of the backstop, and both sides can say, yes, we agree that there are arrangements in place that that deal, that provide for the people of Northern Ireland, uh, and therefore that the backstop is no longer necessary. Can we we unilaterally leave the the backstop? Yes or no? We can't, can we? But, Sophie, just think about, if you took out an insurance policy, and if you were coming up, up to the point where that, and that insurance policy was being used, and suddenly the people providing that insurance policy pulled the plug on it for you, and you were left without that insurance policy... Without having any say in it, what would you what would you think? So you think actually, the EU is actually, fair enough then for actually, the EU to have this? Actually, what we're talking about is a backstop we never intend to use. The EU don't want to use it either. It's not the only option that is on the table. Were it to have to be used, it, both sides can review it and the process by which we can prove that actually there are other arrangements in place so the backstop can be stopped. And the backstop can only ever be temporary under the legal arrangements of the European Union. 
Shona Murray, let me come to you on that. You watched uh, Theresa May's full interview uh, with Sophie Ridge there this morning. What do you make of what she's saying there? Yeah, I thought, well, because I actually watched Jeremy Corbyn before her, so I was able to compare the two of them and Mm. I thought that it was quite a strong um, performance by her because I think what she laid out very, very importantly is that, you know, this withdrawal agreement that's been sort of uh, defined is about the UK leaving the EU. So it's to do with not only the Irish border, but the £39 billion that they're going to have to pay for their 46 members, 46 years of membership, which is not, by the way, a divorce fee. It's because they've been a member for 46 years. So they've committed to various projects in the budget, so they have to pay it off. It's not like the EU is sort of, you know, making them pay this random Mm. amount. And it's similarly to do with, you know, citizens' rights. When you're leaving the EU, can we make sure we have reciprocal rights for our citizens, EU citizens of the UK, and likewise in the EU? And then you have an obligation under the Good Friday Agreement. If you go off to to do uh, trade deals around the world... This may uh, result in a border on the island of Ireland because of uh, the fact that we, we need to make sure there's regula- regulatory alignment to, to protect the single market. So just to ensure that that Good Friday Agreement is maintained, um, we need this backstop. So it's insurance policy. It's not the deal. It's not actually the future relation between the EU and the UK. I think she explained that very well because everybody's kind of up in arms about the fact that this backstop does if it is used, keep the UK in this uh, customs yeah. union, UK-wide customs union. Um, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be triggered if they get the future relationship stuff, you know, done and dusted within the next few years. Now, that is going to be quite difficult. And also, she, you know, she, she said it there in the clip as well, you can't have an insurance policy if one party decides they want to unilaterally pull out of it. It's just doesn't make any sense. It yes. defies the whole idea of the backstop. The backstop is there to, to ensure that no matter what happens in the future, there's no border on the island of Ireland. So how can the UK then say after a year, well, actually, we decided that we don't want to give you that guarantee anymore. Well, how is it a guarantee? And anyway, and so the thing is, and I was listening to Rob as well earlier, and he was saying, you know, that the EU would have a veto over it. It's this the language again. The EU doesn't ever veto any. The vetoes are rarely used in the process of politics in the EU because it's it's actually an institution that deals with consensus. So it's not like if the UK said, "Look, we think we're ready to leave this backstop because um, we think the future relationship is intact." The EU, EU doesn't veto it. They both come together and say, "Well, hold on a minute. Let's look at our future relationship. Is there enough alignment um, between and you know regulatory alignment? Is there enough closeness between the two of us to ensure that we don't need a, a, a border on the island of Ireland? If there is, then I think we can both agree that we don't need this backstop anymore." And that's what it's there for. Mm. It's not about the EU saying we're going to have this sort of Democles over the UK for the rest of eternity. You know, it's up to both sides to ensure that the backstop can be, uh, you know, removed um, when they've they've figured out this future relationship. And in this withdrawal agreement, it has uh, an ability for the UK to extend the 20-month transition period. The 20 months is from Brexit, which is March. So that starts from March. Exactly. And it's 20 months. But in the withdrawal agreement, it says says, uh, that you can extend the withdrawal agreement or the transitional period to 20XX. And the XX is there because the British can decide for how long they want to extend the transition period. And they have to make that decision, by the way, within the next few weeks um, for how long. And it can be only triggered once. But the point is that you know, it's just the language that is used in the UK that again makes it look like the EU is trying to drag them into the situation where they can't leave. It's so complex. The Good Friday, you know, unfortunately, the UK does have an obligation under the Good Friday Agreement and that supersedes everything. OK, as we mentioned there, as Shona mentioned, Dominic Rabb also spoke to the Andrew uh, Marr show in the past hour. We'll have a little listen to what he had to say. 
I do think we are being bullied. I do think we are being subject to what is pretty close to blackmail, frankly, for your viewers at home. And I do think there is a point at which it probably should have been done before, where we just say, I'm sorry, this is the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland. We cannot accept those dictated terms. So whose political will and resolve was lacking? Oh, the government as a whole, but ultimately, of course... Um, the Prime Minister, I've been, surely. I've been arguing with the Prime Minister for a while that actually we need to say that there's a line in the sand beyond which we wouldn't move. Got to quote your ally, Boris Johnson, you're trying to have your cake and eat it, aren't you? You've actually made a devastating attack on the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement. You have resigned from the government, triggering a political crisis. And now you're mm. saying you support the Prime Minister, who doesn't have the will and resolve to carry on and negotiate this. But it's it a pretty weird position to be in, is it not? Well, in fairness, um, you say Boris Johnson is my ally, he's a friend and a, a good colleague, but he's not an ally. I'm supporting this Prime Minister. But the truth is, people expect their politicians to be able to be true to their convictions and be honest. I couldn't, in good faith, for the reasons I set out in my resignation letter and that we've gone over, sign this country, the country I love, up to that deal. If I'll come to you on that, Dominic Rabb there, uh, former Brexit secretary, having his cake and eating it. What do you make of that? What body had to say? It's so interesting to hear the language that he used there, like bullied, blackmailed, dictator terms. Mm. It's, you know, it harks back to what Jonah was saying there about the rhetoric that, you know, um, is being used by the UK government in terms of what's being forced on them by the EU when they're the ones that have, mm. you know, through referendum have made the decision to leave. They have triggered Brexit. Now they have to deal with the consequences. And it's, I think, you know, for people, people looking at the coverage this week there's been a lot of confusion because there's all that talk about the backstop and people thinking that the backstop is this absolutely massive um, thing that you know again when Sean explained exactly what the backstop was you realise why are people what, you know what's going yeah, on here yeah sometimes you do need it though you need that explanation it, it kind of ex explained like that really succinctly like you the just need to remind of people it. of exactly what that is exactly and how key Northern Ireland is to it and how yeah. key the DUP are to it and I think you know um, seeing Theresa May as well this week it's been really interesting to see how she has to, had to stand super super firm you know, she, her her speeches tend to be quite boring. Um, every time she goes to do a, a public you know, speech or make a declaration, you know, in the office we're thinking, oh God, that's not going. She's not somebody who's known for saying anything bombastic. And she kind of did a bit of a switch around in her in her speech on, I think it was Friday, when it looked like she was going to capitulate after going through all of these resignations and facing a very tough day. And instead she was saying, I'm standing firm. But, you know, we see them standing firm in one way, she's standing firm another way. But then you see this bizarre, um, bizarre rhetoric around the EU and around this kind of dictatorship sovereignty mm. and I think that in Ireland in the Republic and Northern Ireland when we hear those words used and we see them saying this about this decision they've made to leave the EU they, they can't really face up the consequences of the big decisions that's been made. Now Aoife you mentioned there that strong language used by uh, Dominic Rabb in that interview with the Andrew Marr show He's, here's a bit more of what he had to say on Northern Ireland. I think it takes a very predatory approach to Northern Ireland if you look at it the analysis is the mm. cabinet was told, told uh, Northern Ireland will be, will be treated as a third country for regulatory purposes. I don't think that's consistent with keeping the union together. The bridge... So it the, threatens the union. Absolutely, that was one thing. Secondly, the bridge from the end of the implementation period to the future relationship will be a combination of customs union and single market with no possibility to get out. Well, no actually, democratic country in history has, set, has ever signed up to something like that. Richie, let me come to you. What do you make of what he's saying there? Well, for, first of all, I, I, the thing is a mess. <coughs> uh, it, it really makes me... That's a nice word for it. We, it, could, it, we could it, say something like, else. As an editor, it, it sells papers. Like we put Brexit on the front. We, we sell more papers because people in Ireland are, are, are you know, businesses and, and, and are obsessed people, they with need to them. know what's going mm. on. But, like, it's... It's crazy to watch like a country like 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 Britain involved in this process. Top level civil, civil servants trying to work out these five hundred and 
85-page documents. Uh, you know, a brilliant democracy struggling with, with, with this internal crisis being played out in the Conservative Party uh, and the amount of energy that's going into mm. it from, from Ireland. Uh, like, the, the amount of people tied up into this thing. Imagine mm. if the energy that went into Brexit was put into climate change, for example, or in mm. Ireland if the energy being put into Brexit was being put into housing. I mean, you know, that, this is the reality. This is this is what they've, they've created. And you're looking at seasoned, like, politicians and commentators in the papers today just kind of... It, almost exasperated by it. Like Michael McDool saying, one thing is clear to me, Brexit would never have been passed by a majority of British voters if they fully understood the realities and complexities of the matters as now known. Uh, Colin McCarthy saying, how does a major European country with a modern economy and a long tradition of parliamentary democracy end up in such a political and constitutional crisis? He says they ended up getting there by accident. And Dan O'Brien is saying, if the EU side was going to change its position on any major issue, it would have done so by now. If other EU countries were going to demand that Ireland take a softer position on the Irish border, they would have done so. But despite all this, politicians like Rab are sitting there saying there's alternatives. So he took part in the negotiations mm. that led up to this 585 document. They've been talking about technological solutions, all this. Where is their alternative? Where is Donald? Mm. Why isn't he being asked about this? And In Britain, all the way this has been covered is, how does this play out for Theresa May? What way is the camera? You look at the papers last week, when the actual deal came through, the amount of space given to the content of the deal versus how this would play out and how this would is tiny. And this is the problem. The British people and the British government don't do detail. They haven't been doing detail on this incredibly detailed project. So for Rab just to rock up onto TV using emotive words, he's like now talking about how the British, how the Irish have um, created tension between Ireland and Britain. This isn't true. Like Ireland have just protected their own position mm. as as, as a sovereign country, a sovereign republic, we have just protected our own position at every stage along the way. Yeah, and and the, the, the fact that Dominic, come in there, yeah, yeah the fact that Dominic Rab, you know, resigned and has the audacity, the audacity. <laughs> to literally be on TV saying a better deal can be done. And similarly with David Davis, I just can't listen to David Davis on, uh, you know, he's on almost twice a week, I think, on BBC, BBC Radio Four in the morning, and and he's taken seriously somehow. And similarly with Michael Gove, a, a, an arch Brexiteer who was off the job of Brexit secretary turned it down you don't you've no business turning down uh, when you're requested by the prime minister of a country to take on a job and and nobody's saying anything about that and Richie's 100% right everybody's talking about this 48 signatures and we're, we're taking seriously people like Jacob Rees-Mogg for example and nobody's talking about this deal and by the way again it's a backstop it's not the future relationship I mean the, it'll be built the, the future relationship will be built upon it but yeah. that's not even in it yet um, you have Nobody talking about how this is actually a good deal for Northern Ireland. It's, it's basically checkers. For Northern Ireland. It's yeah. cake and eat it stuff. It's cakeism. It's it's <laughs> you have the single market, the customs union, and if and if they do end up doing any amazing trade deals with I don't know Chad or whatever in the future. They, Northern Ireland could also access, you know, export um, any of their goods to those countries too. So the Northern Ireland gets every single thing here, but yet the conversation is about uh, somehow disrupting the constitutional order of the UK. Well, it's not. Why is, for example, Scotland then demanding the exact same deal? It's not because, you know, the SNP are in power. It's because it's a good idea, because I suppose Brexit is a bad idea in the first place. But generally speaking, we just haven't heard that voice from the North at all, which is a really disappointing thing. The DUP's position 
is is just crazy. The majority of people in Northern Ireland didn't want this. And the, yeah. DU, mm. the DB are basically watching the UK and Theresa May's government on fire and they're saying we we want the right to step into the fire and go up in flames. Yeah. With them. It's incredible. Like, that's it's exactly what the incredible. DUP, and they're going to come under pressure from businesses in the North. But yeah. so that's the thing I asked that question. But it's, why it's have starting. They, I think I it hope is starting. So, but where, where was it though? It should have been last is, sorry. <laughs> it should have been last Jonas is just falling all over the chair there's a line in the Sunday Times uh, Just there's a piece in the Sunday Times explaining where it's by um, Tim Shipman and it's explaining why um, you know how Gove once saying and one of the things was he was told um, by the food industry that he, Britain could run out of Mars bars in a fortnight if there was delays to ingredients imported from Dover I mean imagine like you're sitting there and these are the conversations now whatever about Mars bars if it's medication yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it. I, mean, well, I mean we heard Theresa May when she did the taking the questions on LBC on Friday morning mm. talking about being a diabetic I didn't realise that mm. she said you know my insulin comes from Denmark or wherever mm. it was but just to go back to what you, you said there Shona about how incredible it is that we're only seeing business come forward now in yeah. the north but you know we saw a lot of the farmers come out against they're the DUP's base you know and now they're coming out saying like look you know we can't believe that you're saying no to this deal it is a brilliant deal for exactly. them exactly not only that though 87% of farmers in the north rely on common agricultural policy yeah access to it and Theresa May you know at the same time in that press conference on Thursday was saying as part of the way of selling this was we're coming out of the common agricultural policy. So who is actually going to give that those dividends to um, the farmers? Mm. Because actually, when they have this future relationship, um, they will have to uh, abide by specific state aid rules. So it's not like the UK can then just give so much uh, funding to farmers that would then, um, you know, give a competitive advantage to UK farmers over European farmers. It gets very technical. But the point is that she's trying to sell this and people are, are supposed to buy it and say, hold on a minute, I'm a farmer that relies like a majority of my funding comes from CAP and you're saying it's a good thing you're pulling this out because how Westminster won't be able to replace no. the common agricultural policy and that's only one element of it the rest is that again it's about trading interdependence and who came up with this idea that it is actually you know um, dividing the constitutional order of the UK I mean that's really just an emotive thing rather than a you know an actual legal thing Aoife let me just come to you mm. before we take a break um, any lots of coverage on Brexit yeah. in the papers but anything else uh, stand out for you particularly? What really struck um, me was there's a piece by Brendan O'Connor a column where he talks about, he asks the question the headline is, are we sure we picked the right team in Brexit wars? And he basically says that we've created this toxic climate towards the UK in Ireland and that Leo Varadkar and co have been very gloating about everything going on with Brexit. It's really interesting, you know, he's saying that we're sitting here eating popcorn and smirking, watching basically while the UK goes up in flames um, and that we should, you know, the worse the UK does, the better that we feel about it. And then those sentiments are echoed then um, by Stephen Kinsla on the Sunday Business Post where he's basically saying listen we should just help our neighbours out you know if the UK needs some help you know Ireland should be there holding its hand I think it's really interesting to see that, that kind but of that, discussion but, but happening but I'm not too that? sure how much I would agree I just with don't what think that's saying the it. case because I, all along and everyone keeps blaming the switch of leaders and Kenny to, to, to Leo Varadkar yeah. you know in the early days nobody knew what was going to happen so we obviously had this much more convivial approach saying that well the UK have been our, our partners for so long we have improved relations so therefore why would we ever think that they would renege on an agreement and then it got worse because the UK then started talking about mo- pulling away completely from the EU from the EU 
that would be devastating to the Good Friday Agreement and then ignored warnings about Good Friday Agreement and then you hear rhetoric like well the Good Friday Agreement has had its day and then you th- and then you hear uh, when their backstop is signed up last December uh, David Davis saying I'm sure it's not even not, uh, binding and then continuously we've had this and then Dominic Rabb saying well let's unilaterally pull out of it and then attacks on the Irish system and then people like Ian Duncan Smith you know listened to and taken seriously saying oh the reason why the Irish are being so uh, concerned here is because Sinn Féin are trying to you know target Fine Gael's votes because it's a presidential election that's just insulting for a very senior politician to have such a misinterpretation about the political system in Ireland and the, and the political environment and that's been consistent throughout the mm. press has been incredibly mendacious the politicians have been mendacious and they've been incredibly insulting so even and actually there has been soothing words like even Simon Coveney in particular has said you know Ireland will be Britain's greatest friends throughout and they will but in fairness I, d- I really think that it came first from the UK and it's continued that way Okay Shona Murray Aoife Barry and Richie Oakley are staying with us we'll be back in just a moment On the record On News Talk. Now you're listening to News Talks on the Record with me, Susan Keogh, filling in for Kieran Cudahy this morning. And we're talking through our, the papers with our panel. I'm joined in studio by Shona Murray, Europe correspondent for Euronews, Aoife Barry, assistant news editor at thejournal.ie, and Richie Oakley, editor of the Times Ireland edition. Now there's lots of coverage of the Finnegale Ardesh in the papers this morning. And what the Taoiseach, Leo Vradkar, had to say in his speech yesterday. It's the front page story of the Sunday Independent. Kevin Doyle has this this morning. The headline reading, Vradkar in 3,000 euro tax cut grab for power. So we'll have a little listen now to some of what Leo Vragkar had to say. People on average incomes in Ireland pay the highest rate of income tax. The average full-time income is almost €46,000 a year at the moment in Ireland. But people pay the top rate of tax on everything they earn, just over 35000 It discourages parents from returning to the workforce. It discourages people who emigrated from coming back home makes it harder to attract good jobs and talent and investment to Ireland. And now it's holding our country back. So Fine Gael and government will end this unfairness. We won't do it in one big dramatic move like Fianna Fáil. We've learned from those mistakes. We'll do it in a way that's sustainable and affordable. And we have a good record. Over the last three budgets, Fine Gael, working with the independents and government, have increased the point at which people pay the high rate of tax but now we must go further. So over the next five budgets, we'll commit to increase the points at which people pay the top rate of tax to 50,000 for a single person and 100,000 for a couple with two incomes. Aoife, I'll come to you mm. first on this. Is that an election speech if you ever heard one? Well, you know, uh, they <laughs> say that they say on one, on one hand that Fine Gael don't want an election anyway this side of Christmas and on the other uh, side you have people like Charlie Flanagan saying that the printing presses are well-oiled for those posters to be printed up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very big pledge to make, obviously. It's going to take about three years for it to fully you know, come into play. There was a swipe at Fianna Fáil made, of course, during the speech as well too. So he was a big kind of, swipe. Yeah, and he was coming out fighting. And, and, and you know, it's always interesting I say interesting with a bit of a weary sigh to see how Micheál Martin and Leo Vralker swipe back and mm. forth around this issue around confidence and supply and obviously um, Leo is going to take any opportunity he can to take a hit at Fianna Fáil for what happened in the past and then on the other hand you're going to have Micheál Martin you know accusing uh, Leo of various things too but I mean I think your average person would think yeah that, that I want to hear that. that that's good stuff for me to hear you know I want to see it happening um, you know I want to see in three years time this making a difference to people but you also have him talking about 
about fairness at a time where we have huge issues around housing, huge issues around homelessness, people living in hotels, children homeless for years. Um, a lot of people think that Fine Gael are an unfair government too. So I don't think he can talk about Fine Gael bringing fairness um, when actually a lot of people are, are suffering in this country too. Richie, what do you make of uh, that uh, pledge there? <laughs> if uh, any any government wants to, to raise the the top level of tax, like I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for that. Um, I think Ireland, uh, you do better in Ireland spending the money from your own pocket uh, in many cases than giving it through the government to spend on things. But uh, wh- where would they get this money? I mean, I'd like to hear what the fiscal mm. advisory council would have to say about this uh, in terms of cautiousness, um, whether it would affect our competitiveness. You, you, the government will. It's easy to do the tax, but the, the harder things are are to reduce the cost of living through massive reforms of things like legal reform and the health system. They're going to still have the health crisis. They're going to still have a housing crisis. They'll also have a crisis in university funding that the, that they need to address. And you'd like to be hearing plans about those rather than uh, where you're going to be, you know, where people are going to be getting extra money. But I mean, it has been a case for, for a long time in Ireland where the so-called squeeze middle have been paying a high high level of tax and there has been need to widen the tax base to make it a more fair system. How you do that without, while still being able to have the safety net of a proper social welfare system, proper public health system, is the balancing act. Uh, and sometimes I think when, when politicians are going after votes, they kind of, they lose, lose sight of that. So... Uh, I, I'll definitely, <laughs> I'll definitely take the money. I think lots of people, lots of people struggling with with childcare, um, people who are putting, you know, to get to that level of, of salary, you have to put in a lot of yeah. years of, of really hard yeah. work, and, and then you get that salary, and you just watch like, it all go- it disappear. A large amount of it mm. disappearing now. It's go- and then you watch how it's being spent by the government, yeah. and you kind of despair in some cases. Shona, what did you make uh, of what he's saying there? Or I suppose more particularly, talk to me about confidence and supply. So those talks entering the fourth week, um, and they're still, I think, at their review stage. Mm. And Aoife made reference de- there to the swipe that the Taoiseach made at Micheál Martin last night in his speech. What do you think we're going to see come out of that in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with uh, Richie and all that. You know, it is really tempting to just tell people they'll have more money in their pocket. And despite the fact that we do we do want that, but that doesn't mean that people aren't still oh, way overspending on things like childcare and rent and housing. And, it's, and it still makes up too much of a proportion of the sal- your salary or your, your monthly uh, wage that goes out on those issues. So I think that actually people would like to see a more uh, fundamental development of society as in, well, long term, medium term, you know, are, are we going to be able to move home at some point or because like you just feel like it's such a waste and such a loss when that amount of money goes out of your um, your monthly account. When in other, let's say, European countries, that's not the case. You know, Ireland, there was a there was a really interesting Eurostat um recently which said that Ireland is is the country which spends the, such a high percentage of salaries on mortgage repayments for example and childcare whereas most uh, European member states would have you know they would have their disposable income at something like 50% after childcare and after um, you know rent and housing and that's the way it should be so that way people have more um, control over their money not just being it being handed to you in, in this sort of, sort of uh, glib almost manner because people want to know 
know, well, where's the investment coming from? Mm. And like, then they will they have to spend that extra three grand on private health care because the, the system has gone up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's gone up. But also the health system doesn't um, provide what you can be given in a, in a private setting either. So extra cash is almost meaningless if it actually if drives to take it in one hand. Exactly. And it doesn't actually do it it make any dent or deal with the really cash, like fundamental problems with the health system and with the housing crisis. The chances are they, they, they will have to introduce more user pay taxes. I mean, we didn't get water charges, but we are going to have to have, I mean, it's, it's simply a fact that we're going to have to have a, a carbon tax mm. uh, increase. Um, and the thing about those taxes is, yeah, they hit you as well, but you can make lifestyle cha- changes to, to opt out of them to some extent. So you have so, c- some control so, over it to some degree. Yeah, you do. To, to some degree, obviously, but not everyone. And, and some people are hit harder. But mm. but you have to, you, the way climate change is going, you have to make these kind of changes that influence behaviour among people. And probably that's how they get back mm. some of this. I can imagine Pascal Dunn, who is looking at what he's going to be bringing in in carbon tax in, in order to be able to balance this out. Which is the question too of if you're going to introduce those types of taxes, how do you do it and do you do it in a way that actually gets a backlash from people or do you do it in a way where people understand why they're why they're paying this money and, and the actual, you know, I suppose the result of paying that? Mm. Or, so I think there is a danger sometimes here where we get these uh, things announced by government and people are, are get their backs up and feel like it's being pushed on them, even if the reason might be, say, carbon taxes, essentially mm. that's for essentially a good reason, you know, uh, fighting back against the impact of climate change. But if people feel like they're not getting anything out of it or that it's just being pushed on them you will actually get the backs up of, of the public and that can result um, in quite serious issues. Um, Richie mm. loads of coverage in all the papers on you know uh, general election timing confidence and supply anything else standing out for you? Well Steve the, the Sunday Times has a poll today and uh, Fianna Gael are at 30% and Fianna Fáil are at 27% and Sinn Féin are at 23% that so, they're up four, are they? Is that? Yeah, Sinn Féin are up four, which is uh, extraordinary. I don't know um, exactly what that's been put to, I suppose, the new leader. Uh, mm. But, I mean, it, it would be interesting to see, like, if we had an election, whether or not we'd have much of a change in terms of numbers um, and where that's going to go. Mm. I, 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 I think we will have elections sooner uh, rather than later. I, I don't see... Fianna Fáil signing up to multiple more years of, of government for, for Fianna Gael. I just don't see me on my yeah, especially with the party membership. You know, then. I think that there's probably a consensus that the right thing to do at the time was to go with the confidence supply. They probably weren't in, given much choice either, but still, it did mend in somewhat, uh, in some way, the stability. You know, of this of the mm. of the state. You know, uh, in, seeing as where we were. But the membership of Fianna Fáil probably want Fianna Fáil to break away now and pursue their own uh, agenda, which is probably the, almost the same as Fianna Gael's anyway. And Fianna Gael is doing quite well. So, uh, and you know, Mia, Mia Martin tends to have a very good, very positive rating uh, as like in, as the a, in the polls himself as a leader. And mm. um, maybe the party itself is. Um, is far behind when it comes to social issues. It wasn't really, um, you know, there for the same-sex marriage debate. And as we saw, you know, they, the views tended to be quite uh, archaic when it came to the, um, the the debate on the Eighth Amendment. But but I would say that Fianna Fáil similarly would, would like, at this stage, should probably pursue its own agenda. If it is to have credibility amongst its its membership, uh, you know, I think it would be probably the right thing to do. I don't know if it would be the right thing to do to the country necessarily. But I'm that's, saying, the, that's yeah. the thing. I think we, yeah. all, we all, like, you know, as journalists or people, 
people who live in our bubble, we're always very quick to say, oh, no, like, you know, don't, no election. Like, you know, mm. the well, idea. I love an election, personally. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we tend to think, oh, God, the thoughts of listening to all of that for so yeah, long, yeah. you know, and there is that, you know, you're like, don't do it around Christmas. Like, mm. what, it was probably a year ago that yeah, we thought yeah. we were going to have, like, Christmas <laughs> was going to be ruined by Francis Pass, Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. Like, so we tend to do that. But is that reflective of what the general public think? Like, you know, so if the general public are watching... If you're a die-hard Fianna Fáil, you want to see their, their, their full stamp yeah, on, as on, opposed on to things that are... Put, that, well, exactly. Well, mm. the things that are being pursued that they would be on board with and that are that they are seen as a success. I mean, Fianna Fáil, um, you know, were really at the forefront of the Good Friday Agreement and, and relations with the North much more than Fine Gael were. So you could see that they have a, relate, a much more close consciousness. So there's nothing to say that they couldn't do a good job when it comes to Brexit anyway. I'm not defending Fianna Fáil. I'm just saying, you know, that uh, they could be up. They, there is something to sell there. But if you just languish in, in the in the sort of in the decisions made by Fine Gael, then you're you're kind of losing credibility as the days go by. That's the days probably why Mihal Martin's being so bullish as well. You know, mm. he's really been bullish on this topic, and there's all there's a lot of stuff about letters going back and forth about the confidence and supply couple they of months ago as well. So he's not doing it for <laughs> yeah, and he's not doing it for no reason. You know, yeah. he's doing it because he feels he has a good hand in it, and because he wants to assert himself. Any so. other pieces on that, Aoife, that caught your eye this morning? Um, I think I was mostly struck um, by the the piece about the poll because I think that like when you, like I know we've mentioned already, but I think when you see that um, you, when you see Fine Gael making making plans and standing up and talking about this, and then you see the lie of the land of where the support actually lies, that tells you about why they are saying these things. Um, most of the compared to I suppose with Brexit in the papers, a lot of it is analysis in terms of what people think about Brexit. But on this, people are really just kind of outlining what's happening with confidence and supply. Um, what happened yesterday when Leo was making his speech so I didn't see anything really dramatic I didn't there see ha- any there kind been of a lot coming from pieces, the, the, the you know? talk so far no, like, no, yeah, we haven't exactly. had it I mean people just are, yeah, I suppose that's our fault maybe we need a bit more uh, a bit more analysis here for all of us um, on this. so there wasn't anything juicy <laughs> maybe they, do they have anything else I mean has anyone seen Fianna Fáil say anything very different in relation to how to deal with the housing crisis or it's I mean, a bit like what Richie was saying about uh, across in the UK, like about, you know, not just giving out about what's happening, but coming forward with an actual alternative yeah. sometimes to they these things. Really That's what we want. Uh, I, sure. I'm terrible. I, t- I tend to credit Irish political parties. I, like, you know, so I, I, I thought Labour took a brave stance when they went into government and mm. despite promising the sun and the stars, then actually just delivered austerity measures. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I thought that was responsible. Just a little tiny bit less austerity. Yeah, but then they got hammered by the voters for breaking their promises. Fianna Fáil now, I think, again, that they that you know that fair play to them they allowed a government form like you know they responsible thing you know to they're do. doing the responsible thing mm. they pass budgets they're now saying look pass the abortion legislation uh, we'll we'll stick by you by Brexit as well and sure enough they'll probably get hammered by the voters for that as well just actually <laughs> one thing on the poll just goes straight that the presidential elections don't actually reflect party uh, allegiances allegiance exactly mm. because Sinn Fein did obviously not great mm. terrible in yeah the I mean and, uh, and then. Um, but obviously, but, but they're but up the party few, is exactly. Doing and well. then Michael D obviously did. He's a let's say a Labour candidate, and Labour aren't doing so well either. So it just kind of proves that point a bit too. He's independent, Shona. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Shona Murray, Eva Barry, and Richie Oakley. Stay with me. We'll be back in a moment. On the record, on, on News Talk. 
Susan Kyo sitting in for Kieran Cudahy on On the Record on News Talk this morning. I'm joined in studio by our panel, Shona, Aoife and Richie, and we're talking through the papers. Richie, I'm going to come to you on uh, the front page story in the Sunday Times this morning. Um, cancer patient got a false all clear on a genetic test. Tell us what, what this is about. Yeah, it's uh, slightly complicated, but it's, it's a story by uh, John Mooney, and it involves a woman who was told by Crumlin Children's Hospital that she did not carry a gene which would put at risk of developing cancer. And she's since discovered that she was misinformed and that she did, in fact, mm. uh, carry this gene. It's called BRCA1 uh, gene. The BRCA1, yeah. BRCA1, is it? Mm. Yeah. And she was told in uh, 2009 um, that, that, that she, she didn't have it. Uh, and it now emerged that she has. Um, she has a solicitor representing her who is saying that she wants uh, a review of this process uh, or or is, is threatening high court uh, proceedings or, or, or reserving the right, I should say, to take high, high court proceedings. Uh, Simon Harris has been informed um, and of course the HSE whenever you're dealing with cases like this they can't comment on mm. individual cases so it's very hard to find out more details but it looks like one that would need to be watched very carefully um, following on the back of, of the cervical check you, you need to have um, confidence in, in these types in those of, of checks yeah. and if someone is going to uh, the effort to, to, to find out whether or not they're at risk of, of cancer you'd imagine that that information should come back pretty clear. Um, I mean, best case scenario, this is a one-off. I mean, Mm. horrific. The woman has said uh, she was denied the opportunity for intervention and preventative treatment for almost 10 years and that's going to have life-altering and permanent consequences for her. Um, So that's very sad in terms of of her own individual case. Um, But, I mean... You would you would need to review the process pretty watch. quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to move on to another story actually that um, made headlines all week actually, and this is in relation to uh, the "This Is Not Consent" protest. There's extensive coverage, even all of the yeah. papers um, on this today, which was uh, I was glad to see. Uh, take us through what stood out for you. What what pieces did you like? So I, one thing that really stood out to me was Nadina Regan's column yeah. in the Sunday Business Post magazine. Um, it's not strictly about the case. So I suppose if people aren't familiar with the case, it was a case in Cork, um, in a court in Cork and it was reported by the Irish Examiner newspaper and basically the uh the man who was accused of rape was found not guilty of rape so it's important to say that it was there wasn't a yes. guilty verdict um, but what was mentioned was that uh, the senior counsel defending him talked about the fact that the uh, woman who um, was at the centre of the case that she was wearing a lacy thong at the time the 17 year old 17 year old girl sorry yeah a, a teenager and the question was raised by the senior counsel of what did that actually say that she was wearing that thong um, that obviously led to once a, once a piece is published a lot of commentary around why this was brought up at all why the underwear the young girl was wearing was brought up at all. Um, then we had Ruth Coppinger who appeared in the doll, who brought a thong into the doll and said, this is unusual but I have to do this yeah. because I have to raise questions about how we treat um, people who say they've been raped and people who end up in court. Um, then Nadina Regan's piece is about the issue of consent, which is obviously related to that too. Um, she's talking about the fact that in a number of UK publications women have written about how they've been asked by men to actually record themselves consenting before they have sex and yeah. this is seen as a way mm. by some men of you know defending themselves against uh, themselves against potential cases which is just an absolutely bonkers way to deal with this, with the whole situation. Like she says, you know, consent isn't this, you know, I'm going to sign at the end. And, of and I consent for the end of time. Consent is a issue. That doesn't mean you're not, uh, you know, forced to do so anyway. Just exactly. Circumstances that somebody mm-hmm. says yes. And many people have said yes, I'm sure, to different sexual things that they actually didn't want to do but felt they were forced into doing it at the time. Didn't mean that they weren't, yeah. you know, that they didn't turn around afterwards and feel very, you know, like they were treated really badly. Um, it's so good to see, I think, 
the coverage of this. It's covered a lot in, in every paper. Um, and the focus really is on the protests that have been taking place, that this is not consent hashtag. And it's really heartening to see particularly really young women, the kind of millennials. We hear a lot of giving out about millennials. Um, I, I'm at the very tail end of being a millennial myself. Um, I think I'm past it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, just about there. Um, but they are the people who tend to be, you've got the women who were, so they're the people who tend to be driving a lot of the protests, young women, yeah. um, particularly college students. But you also have women who 40 years ago were taking to the streets at a time when people were saying, what the hell is feminism about rape culture in Ireland and about rape trials? So you have this coalescing of long-term feminism with the kind of fresher new feminism as well. And it's really interesting to see that coming together and people saying, look, we know there is an guilty verdict in this case, but we are not happy with how rape victims are treated. They're treated as witnesses mm-hmm. in, in court. It's an 8% conviction rate. There's only about a 10% rate of people actually going to the Gardaí. The yeah. situation does have to change. Richie, let me come to you. And we saw those protests take place and our own Kira Kelly here from Lunchtime Live um, was down at them and broadcasted from them. And again, like hundreds of young people really put an effort behind this movement. Uh, Francesca Cummin has a great piece um, today in the Sunday Business Post where she talks about that and about the, you know, how f- so few people will come forward and report rapes and how f- so many few people can find them, like want to end up in that court scenario and how something like what we saw happen in court can be so damaging to that process. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so uh, up until recently in, in our, we just got an announcement this week that they're going to carry out a, a new savvy report, which is the report that can find out what level of of sexual crime is is out there as as opposed to how much of it is reported and how much of it yes. ends up going through the courts. Because there's a big difference. In, we had yeah. the, the Belfast rape trial, which you know raised lots of questions about how complainants, uh, obviously the people in that were the the rugby players were found not, not, guilty. not guilty, but it raises lots of questions about how how difficult the process is um, for for complainants. And we've had reviews in Ireland that that are ongoing, and the government are, are looking at this area to make uh, make changes. Um, you know. In a way, like a lawyer is going to do everything they can within the law mm. to, to get their client off. That's simply, that's why you hire a lawyer. That's what they're there for. Um, but if the process allows that lawyer to question the close, I think, then there's something wrong. And that's the point with Francesca the makes in and her that, piece Yeah, today. and Brenda Power has a nice piece as well uh, in the Sunday Times where she says, perhaps a time to consider that rape accusers are not just witnesses and collections of forensic samples, but a, car- a category of prosecutor. That would mean granting them legal representation in the criminal courts when a girl's knickers can become part of a court case that's hardly as unthinkable as it sounds. And that's a really good point that they do seem to need... It, to have legal representation themselves. So in any case, unless unless there's a rule brought in that you can't bring up this stuff, if it is brought up, their prosecution, their lawyers could jump to their feet and say, hang on a second here, what my client was wearing is, you know, and provide a bit more protection. Yeah, yeah I think that's that's about right. Like, we you know what she, this idea that a woman's underwear or any part of her clothing would contribute to her being raped or maybe that that, it, that the man could be misconstrued and seeing that this was somehow a... a, a a line for consent is the fact that the system allows that is objectionable but again the job of the barrister and the lawyers of that defendant is to get him or her off you know in any case so what's interesting as well is that after, in the aftermath of the Belfast rape trial we saw how uh, horrific the the defend or the sorry the um the complainant was treated uh, in within the court system and the fact that she ended up being identified and also the fact that the, that those um accused were identified too which made the whole thing so controversial. And then in, we heard from the Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan then saying things like, well, this, first of all, that would never happen in Ireland because of our court system 
and it's in camera when it comes to rape trials. But second of all, we will ensure that that this sort of system is uh, you know, not so confrontational and nothing has been done. And now we have this case, right? So Sinn Féin actually, I'm looking reading Mark Ty's piece in Sunday Times and he's saying yeah, that Sinn Féin... Yeah, he's a great piece He does a well, really yeah. good, just a roundup of it and it's and saying that Sinn Féin are trying to uh, ask for legislation to be in place so that a woman's clothing doesn't come in to part of the defence because even if a woman was wearing, wearing a pair of underwear that said, rape me, that doesn't mean that a man can do that. You know, the idea that for a second, anything other than a rapist contributes to rape mm. is nonsense. Now, I understand, like, you know, there obviously there can be blurred lines, etc. In, in every single situation. But the idea that just because, I mean, and the lawyer had said in this case, and again, but probably, you know, down the line, this is what the, the narrative is. You know, you're wearing a skimpy outfit, therefore you were asking for it. You know, uh, or and or you wanted to meet someone? Maybe they did want to meet somebody. That's there's no problem. Nothing. Yeah. There's no problem going to a nightclub if you want to meet want someone. To meet somebody. Absolutely. Not, but like you then doesn't mean that you want to have sex with them, or it doesn't mean at the last minute. That yeah, you don't and that's want why to. I think Nadine's piece is so important yeah. because that's she really points at that. Like yeah. you know, she's like you know, I might give consent to have sex in my bedroom now. Does that mean that I want to go out and have sex in the hot tub outside? No. Yeah, you know, exactly. So within five minutes, consent can yeah. change. Yeah. So there's a, there's, a, there's a sketch by Tracy Ullman as well, which is very available online and, and it sees her playing um, a police officer um, who's questioning a man who's been mugged and the questions are very much like well you know what were you wearing and you were showing that you did have money on you and did mm. you bring a wallet with you so yeah. basically you know in those kind <laughs> of things actually yeah. really good it's, it's so, really it's good. so yeah. good and, and to be honest it. as well like you know I think like Richie says defence uh, lawyers have to do their job but they're also reflecting the, you know the mores of the time and they're reflecting social yeah. attitudes and if our attitudes are based in misogyny or based in sexism then they're only going to be using because those things when they're in the Belfast rape trials, the, the same issue. thing was the fact that she was wearing fake tan, and you know uh, whether or not she, you know, was her bleeding was you know, for a period, and whether or not that that was a lie. You know, it was her. It was. It's always women's. Um, sexual tendencies that are on trial and women's sexual morals that are on trial and not anything else you know it's not I mean I understand that and Richie you're, you're 100% right the job of the defendant or the her prosecution is to is to to, to prosecute the defendant but it's the overall it's law overall, around that it's always yeah. about um, women's sexual morals that are always on trial and that's what t- tends to be uh, what's focused on it's like there's the a difference between balancing done. act I mean it obviously can't go so far as as to be, you know, you you can't change the rules to the point where it's made easier to prosecute someone who could potentially be innocent. You know, I mean, the, the, yeah. But mm-hmm. at the moment, it, it's it's not a fair system. I don't think at the moment. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. It's something that we could talk about uh, for another um, hour. My thanks, big thanks to our panel this morning: Shona Murray, Europe correspondent for Euronews; Eva Barry, assistant news editor at the Journal.ie; and Richie Oakley, editor of the Times Ireland edition. Lots more to come in the next hour. Stay tuned.